All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Big Questions with Big John. And today we have a very special guest on. I'm very thrilled to have on uh, the 2020 Libertarian Party vice presidential candidate, Mr. Spike Cohen. Spike, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, John. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, man, I really appreciate it. Uh, I know you're a busy man and uh, just wanted to get you on. Uh, let me give the folks your quick bio here so they know who we're talking about in case they don't, they don't already. Uh, sure. Spike is a successful business owner, libertarian activist, and media figure. Uh, as I mentioned, he ran uh, for, under the Libertarian Party ticket for, uh, in 2020 for, as vice president uh, with Joe Jorgensen running on the top of the ticket uh, as the presidential candidate. And they came in third place, uh, gathering just about 1.85 million votes. Uh, Spike has traveled across the nation by plane and bus and met countless Americans to share the message of liberty uh, with those folks. Uh, Spike, much like myself, started out as a web designer. He owns his own web design company. Uh, I, I, rather, he started one as a teenager, right, in 1998? Yeah, in 1998, right, right, right before in, uh, my uh, 17th birthday. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so you know he's an industrious uh, man. In 2017, he retired from web design to focus on libertarian messaging, uh, entertainment and activism. Uh, this culminated with him becoming the co-owner of Muddied Waters Media, uh, the co-host of the Muddied Waters of Freedom uh, podcast, and also the host of My Fellow Americans. Everyone, this is Spike Cohen. Muddied Waters Media, is that an homage to Muddy Waters? No, it's actually an homage to something called kava, which is funny because I don't actually drink kava, but uh, my co-host does and the original um, co-owner of Muddy Waters Media, they both uh, drink kava and that was actually one of their main discussion points when they first started the show a long time ago. Uh, obviously, it's matured over time right. and uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't drink kava. So uh, it's, it's a reference to that, but also a reference to just uh, how muddy the situation is and how nuanced discussions can be about politics. So it's sort of a, a double entendre. Double there. entendre there. Okay. So yeah. I went in completely, uh, a complete tangent here. It had nothing to do with Blues Legend Muddy Waters. <laughs> no, but we have had people ask that uh, if, if it is that. And um, uh, no, it had nothing to do with that. It was uh, about Kava and about just the, the, uh, the uh, I guess, mess uh, that it is having trying to have an actual uh, discourse about politics on in in this sure. in the yeah. u.s that's cool that's cool and certainly i agree with that sentiment all right um i want to talk to you a little bit about two things uh libertarianism in general but mm -hmm. i want to approach it from two different angles initially uh, i want to talk about a libertarianism as a philosophy for you and then we could talk about the political angle of libertarianism uh, sure. meaning sure. Uh, so if you want to think of it as little l and capital l libertarianism yeah so uh from reading your bio you were born in baltimore mm -hmm. and you were raised in a, a messianic jewish uh tradition is that correct yes i was raised in the faith i'm no longer practicing but i was raised in the messianic faith yeah. right so uh, being from New York myself on the East Coast, let me ask you this. What's a nice Jewish boy doing being a libertarian? Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned that because some of the greatest uh, libertarian thinkers have been Jewish people, Ludwig von Mises, Murray mm -hmm. Rothbard, many others. Uh, so it's it's actually not uncommon for uh for a, a jewish libertarian we've been right. uh at, at the at the front of the line so to speak when it comes to certainly the the philosophical end of it um right. and uh yeah so i it's it's uh it's actually uh, i i would say there's a, a lot of parallels between 
uh, Judaism as a, I guess, eth ethnically for as a ethnicity or as a as a um, uh, as a social uh, idea and and libertarianism. Uh, I've I've talked a lot about that. We're we're a very a relatively small group uh, who has probably undue influence given our size, um, or I should say, uh, uh, disproportionate influence. Uh, and uh, and uh, we up until recently at least have not been primarily concerned about bringing people into our ranks, but rather just making sure uh, we are as right. libertarian or Jewish as we can be. Right. Uh, I, I would say I've been part of that new group of people who are trying to become evangelical libertarians, actually bring people to the movement. But yeah. So, but what's interesting is, uh, and by the way, I had never really thought of that parallel between Judaism and uh, libertarianism. But the libertarianism, way you, yeah. yeah, the way you kind of shaped it does make sense to me uh, in that sense. But I was referring more like, um, I know several of my friends here in New York who are libertarians uh, actually are Jewish as well, but they they came at libertarianism from the left, being from the mm. traditional East Coast uh, Jewish voting bloc, so to speak, very liberal very much yeah. into causes and and um you know the the pooling of resources and things of that yeah. nature uh back in the 40s and 50s obviously being referred to oftentimes as socialists and communists um was that the case for you in in your environment in baltimore i'm assuming baltimore also not necessarily a hotbed of libertarian idealism um so growing up were you surrounded by liberty uh principles or were you more surrounded in the traditional liberal as we've come to understand it today uh sort of environment right so first of all we left baltimore when i was like five so okay. i don't i don't recall as much about like what the uh, political makeup obviously i know uh baltimore is a blue area and, and and maryland in general is a is a blue state but at the time i wasn't really aware of that kind okay. of thing i would say growing up uh, something that was instilled in me was an idea of it's none of the government's business. And frankly, if you look at, you know, every time that that government typically says they're going to protect Jews, watch out, that's that's going to end badly right. for us. That was something that was kind of imbued with me. So uh, I have uh, always been a Second Amendment uh, gun rights maximalist. Uh, mm. That government has no business telling you anything about what you can or can't own. And that, frankly, the moment they start telling you this, this large, heavily armed group of people tells you to give them your guns so they can protect you, that, you know, your your uh, your senses yeah. should be going yeah. off pretty easily. Um, and even on things like your personal choices, your uh, your your sexual preference, your uh, your, you know, what what uh, drugs you choose to use or anything like that. I was always a libertarian on that. I didn't think that was anyone's business, certainly wasn't the government's business. But I will say that. That for quite some time, I was actually more of a neocon, especially mm. after 9-11, when it came to things like foreign policy, surveillance and things like that. I, I was completely convinced after 9-11 that there were these evil people who just attacked mm. us for absolutely no reason and that we needed to, you know, go to their region of the world and make it safe for democracy and, you know, basically show them our freedom and peace loving ways by bombing the crap out mm. of them, killing millions of them and installing puppet it's it's like saying it now sounds ridiculous, but I as fervently as I believe what I believe now, that's how much I believed in neoconservative uh, foreign and uh, and I guess security state policies. And it yeah. was over time that, you know, the reality of the world and some really great thinkers who were engaging people like me that made me rethink that. But no, I actually came out of somewhat of a, I guess, liberty friendly, but still neoconservative background. I've never been from the left. Like yeah. at any point in my life. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, the way you kind of described it, I, I don't know why, but the name Barry Goldwater popped in my mind, the way you started to describe yourself initially, in that he was 
uh, very individualist in a lot of ways, but he was also anti-interventionalist, uh, even though he was obviously sat on the military uh, affairs committees in, yeah. in the Senate. Um, but I know during the Vietnam War, he was like, hey, if we're not winning, let's get the hell out of there. You know, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. point yeah. for us to just be uh, wasting American lives. And I yeah. don't know if that necessarily was anything in your thinking back then, like a Goldwater slash William F. Buckley slash Reagan sort of thing, or... Uh, if you, because it is a weird mix that you would be so quote liberal in a lot of areas when it came to to personal choice, but but a neocon when it came to external forces. Yeah, no, it was a total contradiction, and that's that's really the thing is, uh, and going back a little bit my uh, ideas and my beliefs were really ad hoc, like it is with most people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't based on a solid ph philosophical underpinning. You know, when I, my position on guns was based on my kind of ad hoc experience with being taught about the history of what happens when they disarm people, mm. especially Jews right. and, uh, and, and really anyone, honestly. Uh, and my, my thoughts on drugs and things like that for, was from my experience of watching people like myself, who would use cannabis, and the only real danger was getting in trouble for it. And right. so that that made me think that and, and then, you know, just my various experiences were what led me to believe what I believed. And, you know, it, it was very hit or miss. And it wasn't consistent, which is true of a lot of people. And then when 9-11 happened, I fully bought into the, the, the media and government line that this right. just came out of nowhere. There was, you know, when I heard people like Ron Paul and, and Matt Kibbe and others talk about blowback, I thought it was an insult, the idea that America could possibly be doing things that would make people around the world hate right. us um, right. was just absurd to me. And, and you know, I, I had also bought into collectivizing uh, a government actions as my own. We do that a lot, right? We'll right. say, well, we did this. Well, we didn't do that. The government right. did that and robbed us to pay for it. But, you know, that was really where my thought process was. Uh, and it took, you know, realizing that my neoconservative ways were wrong over time coming into the mid to late 2000s that made me start thinking, okay, well, what is it that I actually believe? If, you know, I don't, I don't want to just keep doing this where I find out I'm wrong. Where, what is it that I actually believe and what does that come from? And I, I spent quite a bit of time uh, reading and studying a bunch of various thinkers along the political sphere. And I say everything from, uh, you know, Mises to Marx and everything in between. And, uh, and that kind of led me towards uh, libertarian sort of anarcho-capitalist libertarianism, which is where I am now. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Barry Goldwater, it's funny because when I used to think of Barry Goldwater uh, back in in, you know, my neocon days, I would think, well, you know, he was really solid when it came to things like sound money and, and, you know, needing to make the government smaller, but he didn't get it. We were close to winning in Vietnam if it wasn't for defeatists like him. And it was the fact that I didn't make that connection, that it was actually me that was being inconsistent and that you couldn't be a, a small government conservative or a small government right. anything while supporting this endless empire that was failing miserably and causing so much immeasurable yeah. suffering, both to American service people and to their loved ones and not to mention to the millions of people being affected overseas you know i didn't make that connection i bought into the the i guess mainstream conservative uh thought process back then and, and i'm yeah. glad that it, it that people like matt kibbe and ron paul and many others were engaging with conservatives and getting us to realize that a you're not being consistently conservative and b you might not even be a conservative right yeah no that's fascinating how people i love hearing stories of how people arrived at their liberty views yeah. you know because there's so many different paths. Like I said, a lot of my friends here in New York arrived at their liberty views, the ones that have from the left. They started yeah. out as your traditional lib New York liberals, mm -hmm. and then they saw things that weren't working. My personal experience has been the complete opposite. I came to my liberty views from the right. Oh, okay. Um, 
my parents grew up, uh, my father especially grew up in communist, uh, on a communist run and uh, fascist run island during World War II uh, in Greece. So when he came here, he used to tell me, he goes, never trust the communists. When I would say, why, Dad? He would say, because they're the only ones that had guns on the island. They took everybody's shotguns. They were the only <laughs> ones allowed to have rifles, you know. Yep, yep, and yep. he came at it very, you know, like, you know, F those communists, you know. Yep, yep. And I remember growing up as a conservative in my younger days, say high school age. Uh, the one thing I said to myself, I never really appreciated of these hardcore conservatives as much as an absolutist as you are, as you are with the, the Second Amendment, apparently, I am with the First Amendment. Yeah, And I just could not tolerate the fact that they wanted to tell people how to speak, what to read, what to see, whether it was a war on pornography, where it was a war yep, on yep, comedians yep, yep. or language. And that's what triggered my path towards the liberty movement. I was like, I, it, it was just maybe as an intellectual or whatever. The fact that someone would stifle your speech, which in essence means stifling your thought, seemed inconsistent with yep. the stated conservative of like, hey, we want restraint. We want a minimal everything. You want to control what my thoughts are? You want to control what I have to say? And that's what kicked me off. And then, of course, now, it's also interesting that I have not fallen into the, I, even though I've read him, I'm not a Mises guy, Mises guy, sorry. But I was more of a um, Milton Friedman. Like he had yeah. much more yeah. outward influence on me coming from the economic angle mm -hmm. um now you also mentioned you're an ancap basically and that was going to be my question like when you put 10 libertarians in a room you'll get 10 different <laughs> definitions of what a libertarian is right the one thing the one thing we always agree on is someone yeah. in here is not a real libertarian exactly it's not me i'm definitely a real <laughs> right. libertarian but so at least one other person right. here really isn't a re if you really get into it really right. isn't a real libertarian right it's always like who's the fish at the poker game and, yes and you yes, never yes, realize yes. it might be you right it um, might be you yeah yeah but 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 here's the thing so like like if i were to characterize my libertarianism a little bit further i'd probably call myself a minarchist or a classical yeah. liberal right yep, um yep. do you find yourself in the same category or would you say you're more of an ancap and agorist how would you like break down your sort of uh, libertarianism if, if you yeah. care to do so at all yeah i am an anarcho-capitalist that is that is my belief i am an anarcho-capitalist uh other people use terms like market anarchist right anarchist there's a bunch of different ways of saying that but yeah no i'm i'm from the the rothbard school of uh, anarcho-capitalism, uh, heavily influenced by Mises, and I will say also influenced by by Friedman. I think some of the best, uh, especially initial things you can show people if they want to see a video that uh, describes libertarian ideas, especially on economics, you know, the free to choose videos. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, another one is anything. Uh, um, Friedman on Donahue was one of the Amazing. ones where it's just like, you know, here he is. And you picture the, the time frame. This yes. is the 1980s. People are either hearing, you know, uh, the the left wing idea of, you know, the, the Democrat mainstream idea of, you know, we need to be ramping up spending or the mainstream right wing idea of we need to be ramping up spending on two completely different things one right. wanted it on guns and the other one wanted it on butter but here you had someone explaining why that entire process was going to create the ruin that we see now to an often befuddled phil donahue who didn't even know how to respond to it and so he just kept let let him keep going because he didn't even know he only knew his well if you believe this then you must be against this and he's just destroying the whole thing yeah. in front of him I, I think it's absolutely beautiful but yeah no yeah. i am an anarcho-capitalist with that said and and, and from an 
as a standpoint of you mentioned agorism agorism is more so of a tactic than an actual philosophy okay. I, I guess you could call it it's a philosophy in and of itself but agorism is the idea of using counter economics uh black markets and gray markets right. and opting out of the system it's sort of as a tactic or a strategy for eliminating or at least greatly reducing the influence of government in our lives and that of others so right. i certainly uh am, am certainly in line with agorist thought when it comes to the kinds of things we can and should be doing uh to try to actually minimize the state now instead of waiting for it to just collapse on its own uh or trying to use just the electoral process uh but with that said i work with minarchists and classical liberals and constitutionalists and, and frankly people that aren't even libertarian uh like you know conservatives progressives mm -hmm. uh, centrists and so forth all day long and and i i will say i I am not someone who says you're not a real libertarian because you're not the same kind of libertarian as me. I may personally believe that the logical conclusion of libertarian ideas like the non-aggression principle mm -hmm. lead us to anarchism or anarcho-capitalism. But that doesn't mean that, A, I know for certain that I'm right. I mean, I believe I am, but I've, I've learned in my 40 years that there are many things that even five, 10 years ago I was certain were true that right. it turned out not to be true. But more importantly, there may be more than one way to do this. Sure. And I think that especially as small of a movement as we are, uh, it is important for us to work with people who agree with us. We probably agree on like 90, 95% on stu of stuff. Uh, and even if you get into the weeds, we may agree on more than, than we may uh, otherwise think just by our labels. And that's why I think it's important we talk a lot about different ideas within the libertarian sphere, but it should always come with the with the disclaimer that we have to and should and do work together constantly, because ultimately, you know, if you think of it as a, a journey, yes. if, you know, you want to be back here at exit 10 and I want to go and like, you know, screen off the guardrails at the end, but uh, or, or or park at the end and, and dive into the ocean. That's probably a better way to put it. Uh, but right currently, we're headed in a, in an armored vehicle, <laughs> handcuffed, going right. 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction. For us to sit there and argue with each other over when we turn this thing around, which exit we should stop at, uh, I think is foolish. I think we should instead be focusing on where recognizing that we're headed in the wrong direction, we're in the wrong place, and we need to be turning right. around and going that way as fast as we can. When we get to exit 10, we can, or as we're approaching it, we can figure out, did we want to stop here? Do we want to keep going? But I think that for now, we should be focused on what we what ties us rather than what separates us. I agree with you. And it was interesting. I was watching a podcast the other day of uh, Michael Malice, and mm -hmm. uh, he, he sort of paraphrased the old Reagan standard, uh, the 11th commandment of Republicans, uh, when Reagan said it was never speak ill of a fellow Republican. Yes. Malice yeah. suggested that this whole infighting, especially in the LP, which we'll get to in a moment, um, he said is ridiculous. You know, let's all agree. He said, I will. Uh, Malice said he would never, ever run down any libertarian or liberty seeking individual, uh, because at the end of the day, we're all pursuing the same thing. Right. which is a superior pursuit to what we currently have, which is this exactly. double-sided statism and people thinking they actually have a choice between left and right. Uh, I don't know about you, but I refuse that dog dogma. When someone says we're socially liberal and fiscally conservative or something like that, I refuse that whole dogma because left, yeah. right to me is something I instead say up and down just to throw a wrench into it. And I'll say, I'm up with liberty. And if you're not, you're down with it. That's all there is to yeah. it. And I like that. I actually yeah. like, that. I like that. I like that, that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just don't think, uh, all right, great. So, um, 
we kind of got where you were, how you got to where you are in terms of uh, a liberty perspective uh, growing mm -hmm. up and how you arrived at this. Um, let's talk about now your involvement in libertarian politics, which at times sure. is a completely different beast. I think you would probably agree with me when I say Very that, often. right? <laughs> okay. Now, what I found interesting is, oh, let me back up and ask you this. Did you decide to become politically active in the LP or were you kind of sort of drafted? How, how did that initiate with you? Uh, so I guess there was a, a, a mild drafting that happened. I, I think I, I need to go a little bit further back to fully explain it. So I've been a small L libertarian since somewhere in the mid to late 2000s, I would say maybe 2008, 2007, something like that. Um, and, and it was sort of a process. So for example, in 08, I remember, you know, Ron Paul and Rudy Giuliani uh, disagreeing in, in their debate. And now I look back and I'm like, man, Ron Paul nailed it. But at the time I was mad at Ron Paul and, and mm. probably agreed at least a little bit more with Giuliani than with Ron Paul. Um, but I had already begun that process of moving my way towards libertarianism so that by like, yeah, 08, 09, something like that, I was pretty much fully libertarian. But I didn't actually join the Libertarian Party for another 10 years. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that was because I look at the party and from my background as an entrepreneur and business owner, you know, I had started a company in my teens. I've been involved in, in many other startups since since then and I look and I just saw glaring like issues that needed to be fixed before anyone could take the party seriously um, right. from a strategy standpoint from a messaging standpoint from a, a tactic standpoint from from so from just an organizational standpoint and I didn't even know all the details this was just what I was seeing like everyone else was right, and outside. I thought well that's not really a good use of my time and I was focused on at that point at growing my business and making money and I thought that was the best way I could I could do things so I I've always been politically outspoken but I I wasn't public with it I would only people that knew me knew my, my politics. And so uh, in 2016, uh, well, actually in 2014, uh, I was told that I probably had multiple sclerosis. Two years later, I was given an official diagnosis. Uh, and after that, that and, and a few other things that happened related to that made me realize, you know, at this point, you don't need to work anymore. Uh, you're at a point where you can, you know, you, you don't need to work to be able to live. Right. And so I retired from my businesses and uh, spent a year figuring out how to live more healthfully because I was just living a very unhealthy life in general. And part of that was figuring out, OK, well, now I've grown up. What do I want to do with my life? And I realized I wanted to leave a legacy and make an impact. And that sort of led me on the path. Uh, towards uh, libertarianism uh, or, or towards libertarian activism and, and, and being involved in the political process. But looking back, it was always really just me remaining open to people asking me if I'd like to do something. I was asked if I would like to start a podcast. And I said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I did that. And that was, that's was that been pretty successful. Uh, and then I was approached and asked, uh, hey, do you want to get involved in, uh, in, you know, in, in the Libertarian Party? And so I, I did that. And then uh, someone came to me with the suggestion of uh, running for the vice presidential nomination. I did that, but with the idea that they certainly weren't going to pick me. I was a relative unknown. There were some people in the party that knew me, but I wasn't well known. Uh, but I wanted to use it as a way to say, hey, guys, from my background, here are the problems that I'm seeing. Here's how we could do it differently and then demonstrate how I could do it without a tremendous amount of concern for, you know, getting delegate whip counts or anything like that right. and really just going out there and showing here's how we can do it i apparently did a good job at that because then they picked me um so it wasn't until the last like you know few weeks that i realized yeah i was probably gonna win this thing and uh, and that really what led me on this 
during the campaign and after the campaign, especially because I didn't even realize up until a few weeks before that I was even going to get the nomination, I always saw that process of running for VP, running to try to you know help the campaign as much as possible as a means of taking the next step, which was learning whatever I could from that process with the good and the bad from it, and then retooling to figure out, well, okay, how do we grow the movement from here? And, and that's right. what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, and uh, that's interesting to me because it sounds like you you kind of you kind of went where the tide took you, sort of. Yeah, even though you, <laughs> you had like a general direction, right? Like you said, yes. I want to end up here, yep. but going from A to B itself was you kind of let fate or however you want to describe it kind of drag you along, which I find very interesting. I um, learned that I learned that in the in my world of of entrepreneurialism and business right. ownership. Um, the web design thing was probably the first thing that I said, this is exactly what I want to do, but because it was relatively new and because I was a child, I was 16 years old. I also was open to the idea that I may, you know, have the totally wrong way of doing this and I needed to figure things out as I went along. And I did. And, and using that kind of humility in the process mm -hmm. of saying, Hey, let's figure this out as we go along. This is the, 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 the macro idea of what I want to do, but we're going to figure out the details as we go along and, and, you know, remain agile and be able to maneuver quickly yeah. and, and adapt quickly. That has served me incredibly well in business. Uh, and it is now apparently serving me pretty well in politics too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is basically taking more of a Zen approach and just remaining open to the experience obviously still making decisions along the way. I'm not just right. getting dragged along, but allowing the facts on the ground to dictate what my next choice is, as opposed to remaining very rigid on, well, I'm going to do this and yeah. then this and then this and then this. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because as I talk to several libertarians on this show, um, I find so many parallels in my own life, which I find so uh, heartening, you know, that, and it seems like as I talk to people, I'm almost getting like a, a libertarian uh, personality trait or composite as I talk <laughs> to people, you know, like, you know how Jordan Peterson says, oh, there's five personality types and, you know, agreeableness, this means that, this means yep. that. Like, uh, for myself, people can't figure out how I've been an entrepreneur, a biologist, a banker, a Wall Street guy, a national radio host, a podcaster, and then a guy who makes dick jokes for a living. You know, it's like, yes. how, how does that all roll into one? And much like yourself, I have like my base principles, basic principles yeah. rather, but then I'm open to that. And I think a lot of libertarians, if you, if you really study them uh, to some degree or any degree yeah. at all, you'll find that that openness seems to be a key trait of a libertarian mind of the libertarian mindset, which is like, yeah. I'm open to, I think I'm right, as you said, but I might be wrong. I I'm open wrong to hearing, open I'm, to please experience. convince yeah. me, persuade me that I'm yeah. wrong. Yep. And let's have a nice conversation. This close mindedness that's so um, it's particularly uh, it's particularly prominent, I think, in conservatives or political conservatives. Mm. And I think it's completely lacking any discretion in political liberals. So whereas conservatives are like, no, no, this is the way it's been done forever. So we have to continue to do it this way. Yeah. Political yeah. liberals seem to be, well, yeah, as long as it makes you happy, I'm willing to accept anything that both of those seem to be extreme ends to me, you know, like yeah, be critical, yeah. be, be, um, be open. Uh, what happened to critical thinking spike? Why can't anybody stop and think critically? Is it okay to say, I don't know. I need to think about this for a minute. It well, seems like most I, people aren't willing to do that. 
Yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure that there's ever been a time where the majority of people are willing to do it. I tend to, here's the, the structure I use when I think about this stuff. I think that you've got uh, four main groups, and, and I, this is nothing that I've come up with myself. There's actually a theory of right. diffusion of ideas and all sorts of stuff that kind of backs this up. But I think that there are the innovators. These are the people who are creating these the ideas. These are the people whose primary focus is on coming up with ideas and systems to disrupt the old ones. The we Elon have no Musk's concept of the, yeah. what's that? The Elon Musks of the world. Yes, the Elon Musks of the world, uh, the Jeff Bezoses of the world. Before these people become multi-billionaire cronies. Yes, the, the people that yes. are like, we're going to disrupt everything. We're going to go back to for, right. first principles. We're going to figure out how to make you know a better wheel, basically. you know how, right. how are we going to do this better? We're not reinventing the wheel per se. We're just looking at the wheel and figuring out uh, you know how we can how we can tweak it and, and, and move forward. And sometimes inventing entirely new processes and, right. and systems in the, in the process. Right. Then you've got your early adopters. These are the people that they tend to go where the innovators are leading them, but they're very open to new ideas. They're, they intuitively understand these new ideas and they actually have a predilection and a, and a predisposition towards new being better, you know, innovation right. and disruption being better than the status quo. So then these, are, these are the people who wait online for three days outside the Apple store for the new model of the iPhone. Well, not necessarily. So these might be the people that would wait out line, wait out in front of the line. They would wait in line for something that the majority of people would go, "What even is this?" Like the iPhone right. one. They iPhone would, they one, would, yes. they they would wait in line now. But see what happens is now over time, as that idea diffuses and 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 spreads out in the culture, now you've got your early majority. Mm. Their primary concern, and again, no one, everyone has various concerns, but their primary concern is does this work? Like they aren't married to an idea just because it's disruptive and they may not be able to figure out or, or intuitively figure out and look at it and see if it'll work or not. Right. They need to see that it will work and then they'll adapt, adapt it. Then there's the late majority. Their only concern is, is everyone else on board with this already? You know, is, is the majority of people on board? I want to be with the crowd. And so if you look at your at the way things are spread through that function, Libertarians are primarily innovators and early adopters, and that's both good and bad. It's the reason why we are at the cutting edge of understanding why things are the way they are and how to fix them, but it's also our bane as to a big part of why we tend to be a small group, because up until recently, our messaging has been to other innovators and early adopters. Mm. Something I've been focusing on is how do we reach that early majority who then will reach the late majority? How do we show those people who are willing to change if they see that it works? How can we show them and demonstrate to them that this works, which will naturally lead them to then pull in the late majority who goes, oh, okay, this is the new thing. We're doing the new thing now. So no, I, I would say that we are primarily innovators and early adopters. We are people that disrupt or seek disruption. And that's good, but it's also been our bane when it comes to growing the movement. Right. And, and actually, that's going to be a great question that, uh, you know, because my follow-up question to that was, um, what do you see the role of the of the political wing, the Libertarian yep. Party, capital L. Now, there's two schools, two main schools of thought, I would think, right? There's mm -hmm. the, the Libertarian Party is not going to win elections in this country. So what mm -hmm. they should do is serve as sort of a philosophical beacon yep. or a, 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 a sort of like the, the pillar of uh, integrity, for lack of a better term. And then there's the other school of thought that says, no, no. A, a party's job, its only purpose is to win elections. Yeah. And yeah. 
depending on which of these two schools of thought you're in, yeah, you have a different approach to what the party should be doing, right? Like if you believe that you're supposed to be a pillar, uh, you know, you're supposed to be the philosophical uh, guiding light, yeah. then you're, you're putting up candidates that are smart, intelligent, they can make every argument in the book. Uh, they understand mm -hmm. economics, right? They, they understand that tariffs are no good, right? They understand yep, yep, the value yep. of free trade, which no one else seems to. But then again, um, they're not going to win elections for the most part. So where a where which camp do you fall in? It's I think I know the answer from what you said already, but I'd like to hear you say it. which camp do you fall in and then the best way to approach it? So I actually think there is a bit of a false dichotomy between having to choose those things. Oh, okay. I think Fair also enough. we need to, it's, it's again, this is the muddied waters aspect of how I answer anything, mm -hmm. which is that I think that there's a, there is a little bit more complexity to it. So the, the base answer is that the purpose of a political party is to run candidates and to do everything it can to get those candidates elected. Now, the reality, the real politic of the thing is that the Libertarian Party is a tiny, tiny party in a system that is designed to keep the two parties exclusively in power. Right. I mean, they will they will fight to keep someone off of the out of the state house. Like that is how much control they have at right. every single aspect: uh, control of corporate media, control of the narrative, control of the ballot system. Uh, in every way, they have every lever of power, and and the system is designed to keep them in power. So the question becomes: Okay, if the goal of the party is to win elections. Well, how do we get around the fact that the system is designed for us to lose elections? And the answer to that is, is twofold. I would say twofold. Number one, we need to look at where we're already winning. Because libertarians, there are hundreds of elected libertarians right, right now. But we need to look at where they're winning, and that's locally. They are Very winning well. in races where often they're nonpartisan races. So there's not as much of a, of a rigor to make sure we don't win because there's not an R, D, L, G, anything next to our name. It's just whatever race we've been in. But it's also where we can use it as a test bed to show people that libertarianism actually works. Not only that we can get elected, but that when we win, they win. It's not just Team Red winning or Team Blue winning. Right. They win. The second part of that is that for both ballot access and national messaging reasons, we have have to run the statewide and federal and nationwide candidates. We have to run gubernatorial candidates. We have to run Senate candidates. We have to run congressional candidates. We have to run uh, presidential and vice presidential candidates, even if right now we aren't in a position to even be able to win. In those races, it is primarily important, unless we get you know, a, you know, a lightning strike situation where someone can actually has a, a shot of winning one of those races, which, which can happen. That primarily, the, the purpose of that race is primarily to use it as that beacon to spread the message. Now, I still think those candidates should run to win. When I ran for vice president, I knew what our odds were. I knew we were going to get single digits, but I ran. I, I slept two hours a day. I visited uh, nearly 40 states. Joe and I combined visited, I think, 47 or 48 states multiple times between us. Right. Uh, we did countless interviews. You know, we got every bit, we went out there and did everything that we could. And had we had the the wherewithal and the attention from the media we were running like we could win or at least i, I was trying my best to run like i could win right. um with that said 
we knew I knew going in what that what that would actually look like, which is why my focus was on helping use that attention, whatever attention I was getting to promote the candidates at the local level who had more of a shot of winning, and also just to spread the the wider libertarian message and the libertarian answer uh, to questions. So I, I don't think it's necessarily you pick between them, it's you recognize that the long term goal is getting people elected, and where the various types of levels of campaigning, what their role is in that. Right. Another greater part of this is that outside of the Libertarian Party is where the work has to be done. We need to grow. Right now, we have a, a statist culture. It doesn't matter if a Republican or Democrat, or for that matter, a Libertarian gets elected, at least at the, at the federal or state level, because the people demand and cry out for more control from government, right. more, you know, more protection, more help, not realizing that it's actually making things worse they want they have a there's a culture or many subcultures of we want you to take care of this for us we need to build a culture of liberty that displaces that and replaces it so that now it doesn't matter who gets elected because the people cry out for freedom and demand that the government get out of their way so that's i think from the question of the, the liberty movement we need to be growing the movement at a cultural level but the party itself needs to recognize its purpose is to win elections which means it needs to figure out case by case uh campaign by campaign is this a campaign to win or is this a campaign to win and demonstrate how libertarianism works or is this a campaign to to get the message out there right exactly i i i understand your point there i see what you're saying and it makes sense to me um having said that the current state of the lp Mm -hmm. uh, everyone, if you're a libertarian, you're talking about the recent takeover by the yes. uh, Mises caucus. Mm -hmm. um, is that something you supported? So uh, I so, uh, just a, a full disclosure, I'm not an uninterested party here. Uh, I joined the Mises caucus the day after it was founded back in 2016, oh, 2017. Okay. I, did not I actually that. joined okay. the Mises caucus two years before I joined the Libertarian Party. Uh, so I'm not a I'm not a, you know, uh, an uninterested sure, uh, third sure. party here. Uh, I shared the goals behind the purpose of the takeover and, and still do. I was one of probably the most outspoken critics of the messaging and the tone and tenor of the takeover strategy. I thought and, and still think that it, it, it made a lot of enemies that we didn't necessarily need to have. I think it should have been presented more as this is our bold vision for the party and we invite you to join us, as opposed to it very often felt like we were saying, you know, the people in charge right now are, are clueless. They have no idea what they're doing. And so we're going to take it over. And I, I just I wasn't a fan of that. Now, with that said, it worked. It won. Yeah. Uh, I will say, I, I think that, it, it, you know, we now have to deal with a lot of enemies that were created because of that. But at the end of the day, that argument's over. They're now in charge. The, the, it, it's, it's not even the Mises caucus anymore. It's the Libertarian Party. They've, they've so when you right. it, it's it can't be understated or overstated just how much it was taken over. They had something yes. like uh, close to three quarters of the delegates, every single member of the executive committee from the chair all the way down to the at large reps and everything in between uh, all of the representatives, every single member of the leadership of the Libertarian Party is either a member of the Mises caucus or a handful of non members who were endorsed by the Mises caucus. So they are completely in charge now. Right. That's why it's a takeover. No doubt. Um, yeah, no, it was literally a takeover. How would you characterize the difference in approach and execution under the new leadership as opposed to the previous regime? 
So it's so early on that it remains to be seen what the difference will actually be in practice. Uh, what I will say is that one big difference was that they came in with a slate, which means that they're all largely of the same mind. There's still some disagreement on the fringes, but for the most part, they're of the same mind what the strategy is moving forward. So I actually went to Washington, D.C. Uh, last month and or I guess earlier this month uh, for their first meeting since they since the takeover, the first mm -hmm. LNC meeting. And I used to watch these meetings online and they'd spend hours arguing over one single point and hopefully get that one thing accomplished that lnc in two days time or actually yeah two days time they got more done than probably the last four or five years of, of both old and new business so right there i was very happy to begin with um in terms of the strategy i think the big thing is that the without getting into all the granular details uh the the overall idea is kind of in line with what i just said that we need to be using the party to demonstrate libertarianism both in word and in deed you know where we can get people elected let's get them elected but let's not just get them elected for the sake of it let's get them elected with a broader strategy of libertarian elected officials working together to demonstrate that liberty works better than statism so don't just get elected and go hey look we got a, someone with an l next to their right. name actually have a strategy behind that and have and also they're positioning themselves to become the official party of the counterculture, which is something that I was actually saying in 2019. And it's not I wasn't the first one to say it, but it's something that's been said that if we are, you know, our ideas are completely different, a stark contrast from right. Republicans, Democrats, anyone Absolutely. else, then we should be positioning ourselves with the people who are saying I'm done with this status quo, even if they're not fully libertarian yet, that's fine, we can, we can approach them, we can, you know, engage with them, and, and they can become more libertarian over time, like we did, most of us mm -hmm. were not, you know, you also were not uh, once not a libertarian, most right. of us uh, are first generation libertarians we were we didn't weren't born into this um but becoming the kind of official party of the counterculture uh yeah. so at the at the national level become the party of the counterculture or or one of one of the major part or a party of the counterculture and at the more local level where we can actually win races get people elected with an over uh, arching strategy of using things like localization and nullification to demonstrate that more freedom in the hands of individuals leads to better outcomes and also killing the narrative that libertarians can't win so yeah we will uh, you know this takeover happened back in june uh, so we will find out, you know, it's going to take at least a, a few more months to see where we are in terms of actual success. But I'm very hopeful for this, not just because I am in the Mises caucus and 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 their goals have largely been the same as, as my personal goals for the party, right. um, which is why I joined in the first place. Uh, but also the um, because I want whoever's in charge of the party to do well with the previous leadership. I wanted them to do well. I want the party to do well. Right. No, that's that's fair enough. I have a question, though, that has always struck me as philosophical in nature, not so much practical, which sure. is given the goal of saying getting more libertarians elected, getting more people to understand the value of liberty, getting more people, as you said, sort of becoming the counterculture party. Hmm. Is there some sort of ideological line you draw where you say, I'm willing to compromise, but only up until here? And what I'm thinking about it is, think so, like I heard uh, Penn Jillette talk about this with uh, Nick Gillespie on the Reason podcast. And Penn said, I'm almost done with the libertarians, not because my philosophy has changed, but he was really put off by the way they accept a majority or seemingly a majority accepted Donald Trump. Yeah. And in some ways, I agreed with him because personally, I find Trump 
completely distasteful. Um, he is a complete, he's a complete authoritarian in my opinion. And the fact that he has an R or that he calls himself conservative, or I heard at one point say, Hey, I'm the most libertarian president ever. Um, I don't understand any of that. Yeah. I know the official position of the libertarian party was certainly not, we endorse Trump or right. we, we, you know, but within the rank and file for lack of a better term, or if you go to a libertarian podcasts or boards, you saw a lot of the acceptance of Trump. Now, yep. I tended to write it off to, well, they like him just because he's blowing shit up, quite honestly, because he is such a ruffian candidate that he's not, he's unlike any other politician that's actually been elected president. Yes. Um, but certainly not on principle, certainly not on mm. ideology. No, no, no. Personally, where do you draw that line where you say, okay, I'm willing, it, we want to make the tent bigger, where do we draw the line? Yeah, so I want. So I think there's actually two questions there, and the first one is the Trump question. Why mm. were so many libertarians? You know, so at the very least, it seemed like even if they didn't support Trump, they at least were enjoying the ride, right? Yes. Like it was, yeah. it was. And I will admit, I, I I saw, and I'm not a fan of Trump. I, I've I've known Trump watching him his history as a businessman. Yes. And I thought, well, I know where this is going. You know, he's good at marketing himself. He's good at reaching people emotionally. He's not good at running things, right? Like his success has come from licensing. He has created this vision of himself that people perceive that he is the the pinnacle of success and luxury and wealth. And so he can successfully license his name. He also was successfully able to get a bunch of people to vote for him. Same energy, same exact right. uh, uh, skill set needed to certainly actually has charisma, run. Right? He certainly has charisma, charisma right? He has as charisma he knows how to emotionally affect his supporters yes. and more importantly he knows how to emotionally affect his opponents yes. which was his biggest his biggest asset during yes. campaigning and even during being president the problem is he's not actually good at running things and he's not willing to admit it and he ends up blaming it on everyone else like right. His presidency, you can add that to Trump Taj Mahal and Trump steaks and Trump water and Trump everything else right. on things that he sold people on an idea. He sold right. them on the sizzle. But on, in fact, with Trump steaks, the literal steak, there was nothing there. And so then he blamed everyone around him who he had just said were some of the smartest people in the world uh, moments or right. days before. So I saw that, you know, I saw that coming just from him personally and from his policies. He's a New York progressive Democrat. Yes. Like, you know, the, the I mean, give me a break. Like this guy was not, you know, the, people will be so surprised when he'd endorse like assault weapons bans or 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 red flag laws it's like he's always been for gun control i think the reason and this speaks to what, what i was saying about being uh the party of the counterculture right. Donald Trump made himself the official candidate of the counterculture. He was against not just what the Democrats were saying, but what mainstream Republicans were saying. And I think that's why he got a lot of libertarians and just counterculture and liberty-minded people, because he was the only major candidate who was saying stuff like, yeah, the Republicans were wrong on uh, uh, on the Iraq war, and so were the Democrats. And, you know, and, I, and that's why I didn't support Bush. You know, this is a man who... You can argue he single-handedly stopped both the Bush and Clinton dynasties. He stopped Jeb Bush uh, and, the, and and also made the family look like a joke. And yeah. then he stopped Hillary Clinton and made the Clintons look like a joke. So if, if we can thank him for nothing,
nothing else, we can thank him for sparing us, you know, 50 years of Bushes and Clintons, if nothing else. But I think that that's where that came from. And it speaks to something that I've been saying for years now. We need to be the party of the counterculture. We need to be, we need to speak to people who are just frustrated with the status quo. They don't know what the solution is from a policy standpoint. They just right. know that it ain't this. And if we don't take that role, then we cede that ground to people like Donald Trump. And for that matter, Bernie Sanders. We yeah. cede it to people who speak anti-establishment, whether or not they actually are anti-establishment, but they're proposing even worse uh, uh, you know, authoritarian solutions to those problems. But they're doing it by first empathizing with the people they're talking to, demonstrating that they understand that the status quo is wrong, and then taking them on a journey for how to fix it. Now, the fact that that journey sucks doesn't matter to those early uh, majority and late majority right. people. We need to become that counterculture, become the spokesperson or one of the main spokespeople for that counterculture so that when people intuitively recognize something is wrong here, these are the, these are the uh, some of the early adopters and a lot of those early majority people that either want disruption or just want something that'll work better. And they'll intuitively get, once we present it to them, our ideas make the most sense. So let's yeah. reach them where they are. So that's the first question. The second question is, where do we compromise? We don't compromise, we outreach. So for example, I welcome anyone. I started an organization called You Were the Power, which is a nonpartisan issues-based local activism organization uh, that I started uh, in, in, I started it as a proof of concept last year, and I officially launched it uh, about three months ago. And we work with everyone. You can be a You Are the Power member and not be even a libertarian, a small L, capital L, even heard the term. Uh, but we have a statement of goals and a statement of values. And if you align with those goals and values, then you're a libertarian, but don't know it yet. But anyway, you, you're welcome to join. Um, but, the, uh, but we don't compromise on those goals or those values. So everyone is welcome to join, but this is what we are about. Right. So it's not saying, uh, you know, it's not a it's not a purity test of, well, you can't come in unless you agree with this. It's you can come in. But by the way, this is what we're about. And this is what we do. And here's why. So it's persuasion instead of, you know, protectionism or coercion right. or pushing right. people out. It's bringing them in and persuading them. I like to say that uh, the more that you can bring people into your orbit, the more you can affect them with your gravity. So the more we can bring people in, our ideas make the most sense. All we have to do is lower their cognitive defenses by bringing them in and and showing them our ideas and showing them that we are people that care, showing them that we have an actual strategy. So it's now once you're elected, that's where you can get into compromise, right? Like you're if you're one of a one one or a small handful of libertarians that are in your city council, state legislature, Congress, whatever, you're going to have to do some horse trading, right? If you want to get anything done, you're going to have to say, okay, I will support this, but we, but this has to happen. And so you set your red lines of like, I won't cross this because I'm trying to move towards this type of thing. Uh, and and that just you know the the more we can get elected, the less we have to compromise. But from a philosophical standpoint we should not be compromising we should be outreaching bringing people in and persuading them i agree with you <clears throat> i was just wondering in terms of candidates for example uh, yeah and again this was largely driven by trump i have to be honest like that guy yeah. to your point i agree with everything you said about him but look i i was born and raised in new york i've known <laughs> trump my whole life yeah he used to proudly walk around saying to people i'm just a democrat from queens i'm just a democrat from queens right yep um so the fact that people like thanks to Roger Ailes and Steve Bannon somehow perceive this guy <laughs> as being a conservative 
A, he's a huckster. He's always been a huckster. Yeah, yeah. Fabulous yeah. marketing job. I'll be the first to yes. say it. I wish I had his yep, marketing yep, yep. team for whatever I'm doing, right? Um, but the libert- I have to admit, the, the by and large libertarian acceptance of Trump, even as a joke, uh, upset me to some extent. Yeah. And, and maybe yeah. that's because I'm more of the philosophical bent of libertarianism. I don't mm-hmm. know. But it really did. And it upset me the second time around. Like maybe in 2016, if you want to say this guy's upsetting the apple cart, maybe I could see it back then if you weren't familiar with his history. But, but in, in 2018, 2019, he's, yeah. you know, t- that's the swamp. He goes from draining the swamp to becoming the king of the swamp creatures. He's running up trillions of dollars in debt. He's angry at the Fed because they're not printing out enough money like he's literally the opposite of what we want no absolutely 100 percent. yeah okay and i knew that was what was going to happen i said listen okay great he's upsetting the apple cart he's speaking to the counterculture but look at his history his history is he sells you on something that never happens and then he blames you for it like that's that's what he does Yeah. yeah yeah um all right great now let me ask you about your particular run initially you were running with uh vermin supreme yes and uh, because of the way the uh, primaries work in the Libertarian Party, um, what was it, the fifth or sixth round, you got elected for the vice presidential post. And uh, I got it in the third round. Third I got round. it in the third round. Joe got it, I believe, in the fourth round. And Vermin Supreme tied for second. I just want to say that. <laughs> Vermin yeah. Supreme tied for second in the fourth right. round. Almost um, tied for second. Uh, Jacob Hornberger was the actual person that got second place but he was ahead by i want to say like 15 delegates or something out of like a thousand right. uh, out of uh out of a thousand and change like just yeah. under 1100 so he all he almost tied for second he made it all the way to the final round right. so you had this interesting pairing of a of the person sitting at the top of the ticket joe jo- yeah. dr jorgensen yeah. uh now taking on as her running mate someone that she initially didn't want right wasn't it john mons was her preference i believe yeah she never she never even after i got it she didn't want me <laughs> right so that was going to be my question how did the two of you get along how did you work together how did that yeah, work so out? i've spoken with joe jorgensen i want to say four or five times in my life uh i only two of which were longer than you know, hi, Joe, good to really? talk to you. Good to really? see you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe more times, actually, it's probably more than that, because I've seen her now at that was during the campaign, maybe three or four times. Um, and post campaign, I've seen her at conventions and other events and stuff. So maybe I'd say now about less than a dozen times, but they've always been like, hey, Joe, good to see you type of thing. Um, uh, so the way it worked, basically, and this was something that I've only recently been talking about because I, I didn't want it to seem like a, you know, a, a spilled you know, sour milk type of thing. And I don't hold anything against Joe as a person or as an individual. Uh, I think she's a, a nice lady. And I think that she uh, I think that she did to her degree the best that she could in that in that race. Um, at the end of the day, Joe Jorgensen won because a bunch of other people either dropped out or didn't do as well as were expected. And so she became she was everyone's second third or fourth choice um and so what happened was you know when justin amash uh made it clear he wasn't going to run when jacob hornberger made some missteps he was actually the front runner for the first several uh, almost the first year of the campaign he was the front runner um but during that the, the our selection process um when uh, you know a few of the other candidates just didn't seem to pan out quite like they were uh, hoping to everyone kind of went to Joe and said, well, she did okay in the debates. And, you know, she didn't seem to do anything embarrassing. And it really came down to a binary choice almost between Joe Jorgensen and Vermin Supreme, who is a 
lead performance artist who wears a boot on his head yes. and promises everyone free ponies. And so they picked Joe. Um, yeah. Joe did not want me, uh, I think because mostly, be, I don't know how much he even knew about me, but I think it was because I was Vermin's, you know, right. kind of a, a, a spoof running mate or proposed running mate. Guilt and, by association, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, guilt by association right. type of thing. And uh, and then after the, uh, the camp, once we actually were, uh, you know, uh, paired together, I started talking with her team. My team started talking with her team about, okay, well, how are we going to work together? You know, kind of merge Team Spike and Team Joe with the obvious idea that she's going to be running the show because she's the top of the ticket. This isn't a 50-50 race. And it was made very clear to us early on that Joe really did not want me involved at all and uh, would prefer that I just go home and not do interviews, wow. not do, just just not, not be involved. Um, and so uh, sort of in a similar way, to how Harry Brown wanted it during when she was the VP candidate in 96. Harry Brown wanted her to just go home oh, and, and, and not really be involved. Um, so maybe it was just that. Maybe it was her idea that, well, VP candidates don't really do much. They just are there. Um, and so I had run on a promise of not doing that, on a promise of here are the things I'm going to do. I'm going to do campus tours. I'm going to do door knocking tours. I'm going to get out there and spread the message at, a, at both a wholesale and retail level, on the ground, meeting people, going across the country, I'm not going to break my promise. And so after some horse trading, basically, I, I just built my own vice presidential team and, uh, and, and campaign that way. So we actually, in a way, there was obviously certain parts of the of the campaign that were shared. But for the most part, we ran two separate campaigns, I just ran telling people to vote for Joe, but sort of as my own team that was doing everything behind the scenes. So there wasn't unfortunately a lot of working together and any of my ideas for messaging were, were basically dismissed outright i said from the beginning uh because at that point we were into the lockdowns and everything else i said this is the biggest single wholesale violation of the rights of the people certainly in our lifetimes and possibly in american history uh, and it's part of a global effort doing this across the developed world and no one is being consistent about it. Donald Trump is, is the only one at a national level who's even saying it's bad, but it's his CDC that's giving the guidance for it. What an absolute massive hypocrite. And it's him that's doing things like the CARES Act, which are going to cause, we know as libertarians, decades of disruption right. in the labor market, in the supply chain, in the cost of living, all the stuff we're seeing play out now, that needs to be our primary main everyday focus. I was told that's not what Joe primarily wants to talk about. When George Floyd was killed and the protests and riots happened, and I'm watching the, the Democrats say, oh, you know, this is because of the racist police, and, you know, these riots are mostly peaceful, and then the Republicans are saying, no, there's no problem here, back the blue, they're all a bunch of violent thugs, and we need to dispose of them. I need, we need to be the ones saying the same criminal, the same system that killed George Floyd is the same system that's letting your neighborhood burn down. You both have the same common enemy here. And I was told that Joe didn't want to talk much about the police, that it was, you know, controversial right. and a lot of people don't like discussing that. That was up to her. I did everything I could say, but, you know, I was the VP candidate for a third party. I didn't get a lot of media attention. I might get some local media attention, but, you know, I, I am what I am, right? Like, I knew I wasn't going to get the main attention. And, and, so, and, unfortunately, those ideas weren't really uh, accepted yeah. by the campaign. And in retrospect, I think that they should have been. Yeah, and it's interesting. I guess that's what I meant in terms of... Um compromise and what's the line for compromise right because yeah. very clearly you were very passionate about wanting to speak about issues that you felt were very libertarian in nature where yeah. we had a very clear stance in contrast to the major parties and again without 
you know, uh, Dr. Jorgensen isn't here to defend herself. So I'm not going to put words in her mouth. Right. Yeah. But she obviously felt the better strategy was whether it was talking economics in general or just general points of liberty, general points. Yeah. Right. Um, which I can understand to some extent, right? Because it's like, you're staying away from controversy and you're just letting people know, Hey, there's a third option which was maybe the Gary Johnson approach, you know, when the Libertarian Party had its greatest success uh, in terms of popular vote. Yes. Um, now, now, personally, it drove me crazy when, like, I could accept Gary Johnson because Gary Johnson, in my opinion, had some gravitas as a former Republican governor. Yeah, but yeah. Having, having vetoed all those spending bills as governor, he had some economic chops to him. Even yeah, if I didn't yeah. agree with everything he said, but yeah. Bill Weld to me was just, yeah, I, I, I think that killed any real momentum we could have had. Um, I, and I don't understand that pick. Was it simply because he was another governor and the thought of two governors? You know, and I mean, no, by the end of the no, campaign, no. that Bill, guy was like, vote for Clinton. Yeah. So the reason that they picked Bill Weld and there's also I mean, we could do a whole episode about the skullduggery <laughs> right. that happened behind the scenes. Right. It should have been Gary Larry. It should have been Gary Johnson and Larry Sharp. That's who the delegates yep. wanted. And after a lot of arm twisting, they went with Bill Weld instead. It even took uh, some back uh, back channel threats that Gary would drop out if Bill didn't get it. Really? And uh, so here's the reason why. And this is just a big Bill Weld was able to get millions of dollars raised by, you know, pulling all he he had been a governor of of uh, Massachusetts. Um, of Massachusetts. Yeah. He was well known in the Beltway circles. He he said, I will raise at least ten million dollars or five, whatever he said. And he did. He raised millions and millions of dollars. And so both because they wanted that money to be able to campaign. And I I will speculate. I'm not saying this is proven or anything. I think that the the consultant and campaigner class of our party saw dollar signs and went with it. But in retrospect, I I can tell you this. I didn't vote for president in 2016 because I certainly wasn't going to vote for Trump or or Clinton and and Bill Weld was a bridge too far. You know, I I know Gary's not an ANCAP or whatever. I didn't care about that. I thought Gary was a good guy. I think he had a successful record. Uh, I I certainly could have voted for Gary. Bill Weld was a bridge too far. Bill Weld was talking about using drones to take out, you know, people that possess drugs, you know, in in school zones, which meant like their homes that were near parks and schools and stuff. Like, I just, like the things he was talking about were absolutely ridiculous. And then, yeah, towards the end, he's all but saying, vote for my friend Hillary. She's great. I just, that was a bridge too far for me. The reason that Gary and Bill did well was because they presented themselves as a beltway media friendly campaign and i think that joe was trying to and this is again me speculating i think joe's campaign was trying to recreate that don't be too controversial just be a pundit that they can bring in to give the both sides take of it and that'll help us get you know three four maybe even five percent the problem is after trump won the uh both the you know the i guess right media sphere of the of fox and and it's you know oan mm-hmm. and those types of things and the left media sphere of cnn msnbc and so forth they both realized that they were just going to pretend that no one else was running except for the democrat and the republican it was going to be trump versus biden no one else was going to get any attention the only time that joe jorgensen prior to the debates which is the time that we're supposed to qualify for the debates by getting 15% or more in opinion polls the only time they even mentioned us was MSN did an article and it got picked up by a few others about the fact that Joe had been bitten by a bat yeah. and our polling numbers our internal polling uh, or not internal polling are the handful of people that were polling us our numbers like doubled 
because people went, oh, there were, there's someone, the libertarians are running someone. That's interesting. <laughs> and also because a lot of people thought it was pretty badass that a 60, what, one year, 61, 62 year old lady got bitten by a bat and immediately got on the plane to do her campaign event and got the rabies shots afterwards. Like how badass is that? Right. right, right. But she, but just the mere mention of us, all of a sudden we went from, you know, I don't know, 2% to 4% or 3% to 6%, whatever it was, right. because we just got mentioned. The Jorgensen campaign strategy was a good strategy for someone who is leading in the polls by a few points and you don't want to upset the apple cart. If you are trying to get the attention of the public, you have to be disruptive. If you know going into it, I'm, I'm almost certain not to win and I just need to reach people with a bold, stark contrast from what these other people are saying, you have to go in there. You have to approach the most controversial things with the boldest and most principled and most intuitive take. It doesn't mean you don't go in and kick over the, the uh, you know, right. kick over the table and insult everyone. You go in and say, these people are lying, these people are lying, it's all a scam and here's how we need to fix it. And right. that just, it wasn't happening. They would, they would, you know, they would talk about, we'd have, they tell us, uh, this is healthcare week. And so we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the healthcare system and the reforms we'd make. And I'd say, no one cares. No one is seeing it. No one has any idea this is happening. This is all beautiful uh, media and documentation you're creating that is going to be seen by tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of people. We need to be reaching tens of millions of yep. people and you have to you have to lean into the controversy and present a bold, stark message that goes, you need to go viral, basically. Right. Not for the right. sake of it, but for the sake of getting out in front of people with a message that no one else is saying. We could have done that with the lockdowns. We could have done that with, uh, with, uh, with the, the police brutality and the riots and all of that stuff. We could have been doing that consistently. And it just, I did my best that I could. I, I certainly, you know, there was certainly room for improvement, but it also was, you know, if, if Joe did an event, maybe, you know, as many as five or even 10 local media might show up because she's, you know, the presidential candidate for a third party, but she's the presidential candidate. If I was doing an event, we might get one, maybe two, because I'm the right. VP candidate, right? right? So no matter what I did, it just wasn't going to get the same attention as the top of the ticket. And, and you know, in retrospect, uh, I was right. I mean, you know, I, I could have been wrong, but I, I in retrospect, I was right. And I, I think it just speaks to we need there are people out there that are so sick of the status quo. Uh, a recent polling said that 13 percent of Americans are satisfied with the way things are with the direction things are going. That means that 87 percent, well into the 80 percentile range of people are sick of this. We need to be speaking to them. Yeah. And it's we need funny, to be speaking to them. It's funny because a lot of polling that I see, these uh, political polls that I see, not on candidates, but the ones that, that uh, ask about ideology and beliefs, without identifying a party, when they start asking you about issues, the biggest percentage of the of American people align with libertarian thought, meaning very often. Yeah. Like it's something like 27, 26, 27%. I think the last one, I, the latest Rasmussen report I saw. Yes, which yes. is far more than any other ideological uh, chunk or bucket that you could you could uh, mm -hmm. find more than socialist yeah. or, or conservative or authoritarian, and yet we have trouble translating that to to pol political success. So it, it's going to be interesting to see where that breaking point, or if it'll happen in our lifetimes. I'm not sure that it will, but it'd be it's it's a fun ride to take. Looking ahead to 2024, are you running again in 2024? 
I don't know yet. It's something that I won't really be seriously considering until somewhere beginning toward beginning middle of next year. Mm -hmm. um, our, unfortunately, um, I tried to change it, but that's something we'll have to do in the future. Uh, our, we select our candidates so late in the process. We, we pick our candidates May of that election year, which is, yeah. I mean, we, we should be Way doing it end of the previous year. Uh, and, and what we say is, well, you know, the Democrats and Republicans, they run their they they have their convention in, you know, September or August of that year. They've been running for two years right. nationally doing debates on major meat. Like it, it, you can't compare those two no. things. We need to be out there. We need to give our uh, our our uh, delegates and our party members time to lick their wounds if their preferred candidate didn't win. We need to give our candidates time right. to build up the resources. We that like there. We need to be showing up at their events already with our nominated candidate, getting in their faces. Like that. We it's just the way that we're doing. We're doing it way too late in the process, but anyway because of that it doesn't really make sense to even try to get involved until like summer of, of the previous year like you're just you're spending a bunch of time and resources uh way too early in the game uh the short answer is that i will do whatever is best for the movement so right. if it becomes a no-brainer uh or you know that i should be doing this for the movement and for the party then i'll do it and if it, if it makes more sense for me to continue doing what i'm doing with you are the power and letting someone even better than me be the uh the presidential candidate uh, then so be it. Um, but I, I haven't ruled anything out, but it's also not something I've spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about one way or another, yeah. other than the, the idea of what would make me want to do it. But the answer, the, an, the ways to answer those questions, it's way too early to be able to answer those. Fair enough. Oh, and I, and I, and I want to speak to something you said earlier about sure. how the majority of people on at least a few things agree with libertarians. That's why we fall into the trap of saying that we're fiscally conservative and socially liberal, because we think, well, that's kind of the secret sauce, right? Most people <laughs> want government to leave them alone and they want uh, both their wallet and their bedroom, right? Like they, they right. for the most part. The problem is the terms progressive and conservative are so loaded that when we present that, people think that we're just all over the place. They think that we're like, you know, kind of almost uh, politically schizophrenic or, or bipolar, <laughs> right, you know, right, well, right. we're, we're, we're left wingers on this, but we're right wingers on that. Well, not only is that bad messaging, but it's not true. It's not true at all. We aren't progressive or conservative. We're libertarians. And so yes. what I like to say is fiscally, I recognize that it's not my money. It's yours. And socially, I recognize that it's not my business, it's yours. And when I say it that way, a lot of, I like to call them normies, a lot of people that are either, you know, uh, Republican, Democrat, unaffiliated, whatever, when they hear it that way, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. But if you say, oh, well, I'm a liberal on some things and a progressive, uh, conservative on other things, people go, well, what are you then? And that right. doesn't even mean anything to them because most people don't even know what progressive and conservative means other than what they what their social circles support. You know, again, right. you're talking to early majority and late majority people. They don't understand these terms. Uh, so even if they're poorly defined, it doesn't even matter because they don't know the, the poorly defined definition. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I focus it on we are not progressives or uh, conservatives. Progressives and conservatives have created the mess that we are in. I we are libertarians and we recognize that government is way too in your business and in your wallet and we need to get them out of both. That's that, how I, that, I, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. And my personal approach in life has been to convert one youngster at a time. If yes. Convert is the right word. Um, yeah, yeah. In, in the early 90s, I began uh, working in ad agencies, which of course is just you know, if you're 30, you're way too old in an ad agency in New York. <laughs> um, 
but it was funny that, you know, I'd have all the, because I was a data analyst, I'd always have these young guys and young gals coming out of college, you know, and blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Hey, you know, fight the power, but not the way you mean it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And very often, you know, we'd end up going to lunch or going on these long client journeys, you know, and I'd say like, um, have you guys ever heard about Milton Friedman? Like there's a ton of YouTube about him, you know, like about this, this, and this. <laughs> right. um, well, we know libertarians or Republicans who like to smoke weed. Yes. Really? I'm straight edge. You guys have never seen me smoke, drink, do anything. That's my personal choice. But I'm not preventing you from doing it. If I'm not going to judge yep. you if you want to do it, right? Yep, yep, yep. Really? Are you kidding me? Oh, you're all, you know, libertarians must be warmongers. No, I'm anti-draft. No, I don't, you yeah. know, if you want to join the army, go ahead, but I'm not going to force you to, blah, blah, blah. And one out of 10 might say, you know, John, you're right. You know, and then the next thing, you know, they're in the libertarian camp. My greatest yep, yep. accomplishment was taking my niece when she went to my alma mater school and she, she, she led the burgeoning libertarian uh, party uh, club, oh, nice. club there, you know, and all, all on her own, you know, and I was so proud of her because um, it's not like I forced her to do it. But when we would talk, you know, like when she was 12, she says, Uncle John, why do I work? Why does my father work? But the government takes like so much of his money every week. Yes. Kids hate taxes. Yeah. Holy crap. When you explain to kids what taxes are, sure. they intuitively are like, that's theft. You're being robbed. <laughs> right. And then what happens over time, people go, well, yes, but it comes with this and that. And, yeah. it, you know, you get that. And so, you it, you know, it's sort of like it's sort of like emperor's new clothes. Right. right. All the adults are sitting there going, oh, what beautiful clothes you have. And the kid's like, no, he's naked. Like if you explain taxes to a kid right. and they're like, no, I don't want that. And then even if afterwards you go, yeah, but they're saying they'll give this to you instead. And they're like, well, no, I could just get that. Like they get it. Like it's, yeah. it's, it is, it is crazy how like a six-year-old will intuitively right. understand what taxation right. really is at its core right. more so than like a lot of like 35 and 40 year olds. It's incredible. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with you. All right. Very quickly. Um, if sure. not for yourself, let me throw some other candidates potentially for the LP, uh, like someone like uh, Justin uh, Amash. What, what are your thoughts on him? I'm a friend of Justin. Every name you're going to say, I'm probably friends with this okay, person. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I'm a fan of, of Justin. I think he is, you could make a, a case that he is, he's certainly in the top five of some of the most libertarian uh, Congress people we've ever had. And there's a case to be made that he's even higher up that list. Um, it's certainly very, very principled. Uh, he also is kind of a, a classical liberal uh, from more from the Hayek school, which is right. really what, what Milton Friedman is from. He's sort of the, right. the more modern iteration of like Frederick Hayek right. and so forth. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we certainly have points of disagreement on policy and things like that. I, I think we may have some disagreements on the edges when it comes to strategy and messaging and things, but I, I'm definitely probably more edgy than he is, I would say. Uh, but I'm a friend. I'm a fan of his and a friend of his. I, yeah. I like him. If we end up picking him, we could do far better, far worse. He is yeah. he is a, a, a great uh, he would do great. Personally, I'm a big fan of Amash and I loved his integrity standing up to Trump and leaving the Republican Party, um, even though he knew his days were numbered because all his financial support withdrew from him. Um, I love the fact that he, his final he act stood on principle. Yeah. he stood on principle and became a libertarian for the first libertarian congressman uh, in U.S. history. Uh, yeah. Larry Sharp uh, ran for governor here in New York. I voted for him, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, I like him. And to me, he's more of a Gary Johnson type in that he has broader appeal while still maintaining a lot of those libertarian ideals. What do you feel about Larry Sharp? Larry Sharp is one of my greatest friends in this movement. I, I think he is incredible as well. What I like about Larry, and I think this is what you're a, a big part of what you're speaking to, is 
you know, from a policy standpoint, probably again, closer to the Justin Amash or, or your camp of being more of a, mm -hmm. you know, classical liberal type, right, right, right. but Larry intuitively, you know, he comes from a similar background as us, entrepreneurial marketing and sales. He gets how to message something, right? Like, you know, uh, he is definitely in that uh, Dale Carnegie school mm -hmm. of how to win friends and influence people, people type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. He is someone that I would trust to airdrop into almost any crowd and just have him give libertarian ideas and everyone walking away at least saying well that was a nice guy i may or may not agree with what he said but he certainly made some points and kind of lowered their cognitive defenses with quite a few of them walking away saying yep he's all, i'm with him he everything he said i'm 100 right. behind it he understands that you need to show people that you care you need to become a figure that people like and trust uh and that that's actually intuitively for most people especially those early and late majority types that matters way more than like your principles or even unfortunately your character it's more like do i trust do i feel like i like or trust right. this person the whole right. like would i have a beer with this person type of thing would he fight uh, so no I, I, I yeah will this person fight for me do i trust them do right. i like what they have to say do i think that they care uh okay. and do i think they're they they understand what they're saying and, and larry checks all those boxes again if we pick him we could do far worse i think he'd be great. I, I agree i i think he would also make a great candidate as well okay the last person i'm going to mention probably wrote in on this latest uh Mises wave uh mm. dave smith now yeah. for years here in new york i used to watch dave smith in Long Island City with the Legion of Skanks get up on stage. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, their club was maybe two blocks from my old studio, you know, uh, in Long Island City. I used to love those guys, uh, outrageous, off the wall, would say anything. Yeah, yeah. He, he's quite the serious thinker, though. Like when yeah. I, I've seen him talk on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, I've seen him on his own. Uh, his first uh, uh, comedy album, I think, was called Veritas. So he's very well steeped in libertarian thinking in liberty thought and principle mm -hmm. yeah how would you feel about him as a candidate or do you feel that's more of the schlocky for lack of a better word sort of approach or, or how do you feel about, i don't want to put words in your mouth how do you feel about dave smith as a candidate yeah. So Dave also was a friend of mine. And so I, I, I had a feeling if there were three, the four people that are named the most as possible front runners for, uh, for the mm -hmm. nomination are Larry, Dave, I always make sure not to say Larry David when I say their names again. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Larry, Dave, Justin, and myself. So, right. and and I'm I'm I consider myself good friends with all of them. Uh, I think Dave uh, is. It's it's interesting because I only know Dave's comedy stuff now. I didn't mm. really know it from before, and so now usually from people going, "Can you believe he said this?" and I look and I'm like, ah, "That's kind of funny." But you know, it's it's a it's from a comedy standpoint, sure. right? Um, so the question becomes. So so to answer your question, he's great on messaging. He's great on principle. Uh, I, there are probably if you go dive into the weeds, there are certain like uh, even though we're both anarcho-capitalists, there are certain strategy and and messaging things that we disagree on. But that's true of me and any other. I mean, no one agrees 100%. I think it's great the attention he's been able to get on things like uh joe rogan and others uh i think that that's great and that can help bring people to the movement right. and, and again to that same question of you know if he got the nomination we could do far worse uh, right. i think any of those three are people that we could do uh much and and have in the past done much worse be, uh than any of those the question with dave obviously becomes with that sort of almost like howard stern level shock jock comedian type of uh background are people a going to be overly offended and b take him 
you know, seriously. I think the take him seriously thing, I, I think that's over, uh, people worry about that too much. The reality is people, most people get their news from comedians, um, whether it's from late night news or, um, um, or from like the Daily Show or something like that. And that's been true for decades. You often see, I mean, how many times have you seen draft John Stewart for president stuff? Sure. So I don't, I don't think that that necessarily is it. I could see the argument that some of the stuff could be seen as offensive. Um, you know, again, I, I think people can most people can take things in context of he was he's a comedian. He he jokes. Sometimes those jokes are offensive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I said, with, with any of those three, if uh, if they get the nomination, we could do um, we, we could do far worse. And so the question for whether I run or not becomes for whatever reason, does it become a no brainer that it's better for me to run than to just put my my support behind one of them or, you know, someone that we're not even talking about right you know, at this point in 2018. Uh, Joe Jorgensen was not even on the list of names people were considering for uh, the it presidential was just, nomination. Wasn't she so, just someone who had always been in, in the Libertarian Party? Like, she just seems like it was just her turn at some point. You know, it's weird because everyone had kind of, for the most part, like, I didn't know who she was. And most people didn't know who she was. And, you know, they saw that she had been in the party since, like, either the late 80s or early 90s. They saw that she was Harry Brown's a VP candidate. But again, you know, Harry had kind of wanted her to you know, not, Off she didn't, the they didn't side. want, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of go to the side. So as a result of that, a lot of people even then didn't really know who she was other than she had been Harry Brown's right. VP. So she was kind of a dark horse that, that seemingly came out of nowhere, even though if you really followed the politics closely, she had been a member of the national party and the state party in South Carolina, which is the state I live in as well for, you know, decades. She just hadn't been very, you know, outspoken or loud uh, or, or prominent. Um, but yeah, it was kind of, she kind of seemingly came out of nowhere, even though she'd been there all along, yeah. which is why, again, I, I am very much in the camp that our uh, presidential candidate could end up being uh, an VP candidate. Because no one knew who I was at this point in 2018, unless they watched my show. Um, no one, uh, you know, it could end up being people we aren't even talking about right now. So the question for my running personally just becomes, is it, does it make sense that I should be the one doing this as opposed to someone else? Or should I just be throwing my support behind someone else or just letting the process play out because the other people running, you can't make a bad pick there. And I focus on what I'm doing with you or the power and with trying to grow the movement. Th that answer will, that question will be much more easily answered in over the coming uh, months and, and, you know, coming into next year. Fantastic. By the way, have you tried getting the interrupters to join? You are the power. The interrupters. They're a ska band and they have a song, uh, Take Back the Power. They're often called. Um, oh, yeah. They're often um, they're often called the libertarian ska band. Oh, OK, I'll have to look into if them. You, then. If you yes, check them out, they have a song called uh, uh, Take Back the Power. So and, Take Back and the they, power? they were very much backers of Ron Paul during his first a couple of campaigns so yeah sorry my attempt at a bad reference i guess i'm a little bit older no no no, no. i'm so. glad you did though because I, I we are trying to bring people in that are entertainers and involved yeah. in the cultural aspect of it and i actually talk a lot about taking back the power i say that the, the problem with what we're the, the what's going on right now boils down to there's too much power in the hands of too few people it's right. been taken from us uh and that the answer is to take the power back and put it back in our hands where it always damn well belongs so i that actually lines up 100 percent with uh with what i with what i believe so i'll have to find out and reach out to them all right well spike thank you so much for joining us today i Absolutely. really appreciate you taking the time i know you're a busy man uh please give out any plugs or websites you want to let the people know about sure Sure. So uh, my, uh, my my on social media, I'm all over. Uh, if you look for Spike Cohen, you'll find me pretty easily. I'm on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I'm on TikTok for the kids. 
And uh, so I'm on there. If you want to follow my show, uh, Muddy Waters of Freedom, that's on Muddy Waters Media. Uh, you can find that on all podcasting and all social media platforms. Uh, so if you listen to podcasts, you'll find us on there, Muddied Waters Media. Our website is also muddiedwatersmedia.com. And if you would like to become a part of the grassroots army fighting for human liberty uh, through issues-based activism, bringing people into the movement, showing people that liberty can win and that when liberty wins, they win too, uh, then join us at You Are The Power. Uh, we are on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and uh Instagram. And then also, uh, if you go to youarethepower.net, we'd love to have you become a member. Membership is free. We just want you to get involved and be a part of the movement. I'm, I'm John, signing. thanks so much for your time, man. Thank you, man. And I'm signing up as soon as we get done with this. Podcast. Thank you. Awesome, I'm going to go awesome. come sign up. Spike, thank you for joining us. We want to have you back again soon as we get further towards the uh, election season again. Sure. You're a great guy to talk to, very easy to talk to. I uh, really appreciate your time. And for everyone out there, join us again next time when we have another great guest like Spike to talk about issues of liberty right here on The Big Question with Big John. Peace out, everyone.